You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that entrepreneur doesn't mean what you think it means. Not necessarily, anyway. It's not about a particular method of creating something. It's not about startups. It's not about IPOs. And for the love of God, it's not about disruption. It's not even about millions or billions or whatever denomination is what's really cool when you're listening to this. It's not about money. It's fundamentally about risk-taking and finding new and interesting ways to create value. And as we all know, value is a relative measure. Which means that though we cannot all be founders or owners, we can all be entrepreneurial, if we want to. But that desire must be true. Our culture has made an idol of entrepreneurship to such a damaging degree that far too many people make choices that lead to waste and despair when, and I truly believe this, they'd have been happier and more successful leading a very different kind of life. In fact, I think more people pursue leadership and management and the sorts of top rung of the ladder roles that are disproportionately rewarded in our culture than ever should because they're not given enough alternative models of success nor the proper chance to reflect upon what would truly be best for them. We have made an excellent business of rushing ourselves to market, and we accept far too much collateral damage. Now, my perspective on this isn't that unique, but it's informed by my own path, along which I've come to rethink what it means to live and work many times over, and will no doubt continue to. And so today, I'd like to do something a little different for this show. Over the course of the next two episodes, I'd like to share with you how my own perspective on entrepreneurship has evolved and offer a critique of the sameness of the popular model of the entrepreneur. I'll also give you eight little nuggets of wisdom that have been helpful to me on my journey so far and only grow in their value to me as it continues. You may be an entrepreneur in the traditional sense. You may have an idea You may be laser-focused on it. You may be lugging around one massive egg in one custom basket. And someday, we may all know the story of when it hatched. If so, congratulations in advance. But more likely, you are the protagonist in an unread choose-your-own-adventure story. You've got many different paths ahead of you. Some lead to the same future by way of different scenery. Some veer off in opposite directions. Some paths lead to fame and fortune. Some lead to quiet contentment. Some may lead to both. But most of them will overlap with the paths of other people. People you'll learn from, people you'll serve, people you'll follow. You won't always be the leader. You may never be. But that doesn't mean you won't take risks or create value or think of and make new things. Or be remembered. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned.
Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Fifteen years ago, I started my own business. This was the first and last time I was an entrepreneur, in the textbook sense of the word. Not knowing any better, I named it after a project I did in my final year at design school. So I had my own business. Hey, look at me, I'm an adult. But it had a long, embarrassing, trying way too hard to sound smart name. So nope very much still a kid. My business was design, so pretty much whatever. Logos, identity systems, brochures, websites. I even made a commercial. The what didn't really matter to me much then. It was just exciting to finally be paid for making things. As a design student, you learn to work all the time. So naturally, I continued this way of life. I worked all the time. But since I got paid for the things I made, I rarely questioned the value of an hour of my work, nor even realized that at the time, I probably could have made more money working in retail while working fewer hours. I hadn't learned about utilization yet. But everyone around me was encouraging. I might even say impressed. See, graduating in the early 2000s was a lot like it is today. Lots of hungry and debt-laden students competing for very few paid positions. It was very common to be a designer, in air quotes, while at the same time being a barista, or a guy who puts chicken wings in a bag for you. I did that last thing, by the way. There were very few viable alternatives if you wanted to make any professional progress while still doing important things like eating and keeping a roof over your head. So to have started my own business, registered, and everything was to the onlooker who perhaps had not, pretty impressive. Now one day, a friend stopped by my office while I was putting some invoices and envelopes, and on my desk were also a few checks that had come in. Like, real, professional checks. The kind that don't even have any handwriting on them. Now, my friend saw them and practically fell off the edge of my bed, where he was sitting. And you heard that right, bed, because by office, I also mean bedroom. But the point is, despite the fact that I was literally sleeping in my office, my friend was pretty impressed. There in front of him was the evidence that I had pulled this thing off, that I was making real money. At that point in our lives, regularly depositing a check was pretty much the only qualification of success. The fact that I was regularly depositing checks spat out by procurement departments at big companies made out to a business name my bank recognized as me was, well, beyond. 
Over the course of that first year, several friends saw what I was doing and got similar glimpses of what was for them a good enough indicator of success that they actually followed my example. And instead of pursuing a typical job, they started businesses of their own. Now, this did not make me feel like a bishop of design entrepreneurship. It made me feel worried. It made me feel like a liar. Because what they perceived was going on with me and my business and what that led them to believe was possible for them just wasn't the full truth. Their belief was that we, graduates of a respected design school, were special. That we had unique and brilliant ideas, talent to realize them, unmatched work ethic, and the manifest destiny to form all of that into something we could own. Their perception was that I had already done that and was well on my way to reaping the rewards. They looked at me and interpreted my life on the basis of three things that are guaranteed to skew the perspective of someone fresh out of college. Number one, worldview. They, we, had already been indoctrinated to revere the independent innovator. We learned at our fine, respected design school that there was nothing we couldn't make ourselves. Nothing we couldn't invent or improve. And outside of that school's walls was a culture that worshipped the big idea and naturally the big ideator. Second, the value of reputation. I didn't correct them when their observations were wrong or their praise unjustified. I wanted to be successful. And in our economy, reputation precedes riches. In the meantime, I'll be honest. It made me feel good to be admired, even in small or silly ways. So I protected my own reputation at the expense of telling them how it really was. And finally, third, the thing every college graduate has in common, inexperience. My friends simply didn't know enough to be able to look at my life and their perception of it and see where things just didn't add up. And I wouldn't have either had I been them and they'd been me. It's not like I was hiding some terrible secret, but come on. My office and my bedroom were the same place. I mean, even Donald Trump, one of the greatest business charlatans of all time, never had a bed in his office. And even if he did, it would have been gold with marble columns for legs and some kind of water feature on it. Mine was plywood and milk crates. So no, the facts were not glamorous. The facts were that facing graduation and an intimidatingly sparse field of employment options, I started freelancing about midway through my senior year. In hindsight, it started to look like kind of a savvy move, especially because I took that next step and actually registered an LLC. But the reality is that I felt doing that would be far less risky than moving to a new city and looking for entry-level work, which is exactly what most of my classmates were doing. Ultimately, Taking on the so-called risk of entrepreneurship was, for me, an act of playing it very safe. And here's another not-so-glamorous fact. At best, I made okay work. Just okay. Most of my clients didn't value design. I mean, they'd hired me, a 22-year-old who looked it and charged accordingly. I certainly wasn't doing much to help them learn to value it more. And even though I was getting work, it was a major effort to stay busy. 
I'd work 80 hours a week just to build 25. I was so busy staying busy that I barely paid attention to my finances. In the end, I earned just enough money that first year to cross the poverty line. You know, I didn't need much. Everything I owned back then could fit in a couple of suitcases. I still didn't have a car, I'd bike to client meetings, and after my bike seat was stolen, I still biked to client meetings. Not exactly an impressive sight. So after a year of this with not a whole lot of change, I realized that I was probably already looking at the ceiling if I didn't find some way to learn what I clearly didn't know. You know, like the basics of design business, project management, client services, financial measurement, marketing, sales, those sorts of things. I was really just winging it, and it definitely showed. Now this epiphany came at a good time. I'd been doing some work for the owner of a small web design company just a short bike ride from where I lived. We'd been meeting up for coffee here and there and talking about design and business, which I saw as the beginning of a mentorship. I thought he was going to be my learning opportunity. As it turned out, he was recruiting me. I resisted this at first, thinking that it would be a compromise to walk away from my thing, from my autonomy. But somehow, I managed to look at it clearly and realized that taking this new job was a necessary step toward learning all those things I knew I didn't know, and more importantly, a necessary step toward humility. That small company was newfangled, where I still work today, almost 15 years later. Very few people I know stay with a company that long. Newfangled is where I've learned everything I know about business and design. It's where I've been fortunate to actually operate entrepreneurially despite it not necessarily fitting the standard definition. See, I didn't found Newfangled. It had been around for nine years before I joined the team, but it's where I've learned an alternative to the narrow model of entrepreneur that we are sold on a daily basis. You know, the founder with a capital F, the driven from birth true believer type, the one with the inexorable path towards success. That person's story is a fairy tale. And yet it's a story we tell over and over again. Despite it being a generally untrue description of reality for most people who have ever lived and ever will live, it certainly isn't my story. And it probably isn't yours. Let me tell you why. What is this person who we imagine like? Well, this person's creative, right? This person is original. So far, so good. Who doesn't want to be like that? This person is driven to transform their ideas into tangible reality. They want to change the world. Okay, okay, that sounds good. This person tirelessly builds prototypes and refines them, perfecting their product. They create complex systems to efficiently produce and deliver that product at mass scale. They understand design, engineering, material science, supply chain, and global economics. Whoa, we're getting way more complicated now. No one can do all of that on their own, right? This person knows how to make a product desirable. They tell a compelling story and tirelessly promote what they create. They tell you why it's important, why you want it. Somehow they inspire and win the adoration of their customers while ruthlessly devouring their competition. 
They create new categories, repeating the process while building their empire. Jeez. Okay, we're getting into mythological territory here, people. This person lives their work. Every moment is devoted to achievement, their own achievement. They set extremely ambitious goals, methodically reverse engineer them, and take only the most efficient steps forward. They reap fortune and glory again and again. They do not lose. And by the way, I've been using the pronoun they here, but let's be honest. This person is often, too often, a man. A white man. A cis white man. What gives? The reality is that there are many not male, not white, not straight people out there changing the world, and the more we discuss and celebrate that, the more there will be. But chances are, even with setting aside gender, race, and sexuality, you are not this sort of person anyway. First and foremost, few people possess all those strengths in equal measure. I know a lot of brilliant people who, while they can certainly wrap their minds around the detail managed by various roles in a company, are happiest, most productive, and offer the most value to the big picture in cooperation with others. Or, in other words, focusing on the things they do best while relying upon others to do what they do best. It's no coincidence that many of our treasured entrepreneurship stories begin with two people, not just one. It was Jobs and Wozniak, Gates and Allen, Bryn and Page. I could go on and on. So why is it that despite the facts of history, we think that the successful CEO always goes it alone? Thankfully, many startup CEOs are coming clean about their struggles meeting their own expectations for what success might look like. There have been many op-eds along these lines over the past few years. The point is that it's not just that this sort of thing is hard. Of course it is. It's that the cultural narrative we've settled on is uninhabitable to most real people. Even the capable, sincere, and highly functional people from whom you'd expect great success to come easy. This may mean that whatever few cases do fit the narrative of the go-it-aloner, and they are very, very few, are not only the result of a variety of disparate factors glued together by luck, but also a very unique, rare, and quite possibly unappealing personality. You may want what these people have, but would you want to be them? There's an important difference there. So it's rare that there's a sole hero at the center of these stories. But what about the plot structure itself? Well, the one-way, linear story is also pretty bogus. And yet, it tends to be the thing we hear most about. The so-and-so never looked back and powered through story. And so we wrongly conclude that it's a normative path to success, but it's not. Realistic success narratives are much harder to string together because they're ad hoc. They're a long, curvy, choose-your-own-adventure story of I did this, which led to this, which led to this, etc., But a simpler story, one in which I was certain that I wanted this and so I relentlessly powered through to get it, goddammit, is much more exciting and likely to cut through the noise. But aren't the ad hoc stories in the end more interesting? Isn't there more mystery there? And isn't at least mentioning the role of mystery in our success narratives a more honest representation of reality? 
After all, the mysterious twists and turns of reality don't preclude your success or your failure. They're simply the terrain. How you navigate them is the story you will tell, and the inherent diversity of the mysteries that will shape your life is a gift to us all because they make plenty of room for nuance when it comes to defining how to achieve success or even what success is. You don't have to try to reverse engineer the paths of the Steve Jobses out there. In fact, it's better that you don't because it probably won't work. Steve Jobs worked hard, yes. Steve Jobs was brilliant, yes. But Steve Jobs also won a very particular kind of genetic and historical lottery. It's not that there aren't valuable things you can learn by studying a life like his, but you have the luxury of looking back at his life in hindsight, going from effect and back to cause. He didn't. And when it comes to your own life, you won't either. Rather than trying to engineer a program for your life based upon the events of other people's lives, why not design your life right now based upon values you can embrace and trust will bring about good things in your life and the postures you can take that put those values into practice? What might that look like? Well, that's entirely up to you. Well, friends, that's all for today. Next time, I'm going to share with you a little bit of the program I've designed for myself. I'll share with you a few principles and postures that keep me working in accordance with my values. It's always helped me to hear how other people think about and do things. So I hope in hearing some of my own approach, you'll start to think more intentionally about your own. There's no one-size-fits-all here. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, take a moment to find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. Oh, and rather than make you wait the usual two weeks for the next episode, the follow-up to this one will come just a week from today. In the meantime, I'd love to hear what you think about entrepreneurship, about working as a designer, about carving out a life for yourself, about keeping all the things that matter to you in balance. My hope is that this show inspires you to do all that. I don't claim to have many of the answers, but I can offer you a safe place to consider the questions and an open and listening mind if you ever want to discuss them. You can find me at designtomorrow.co. So thanks for listening. And remember, What we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.